What does Shrek, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Barbie, Wes Anderson movies, the tragically underrated Joe Parra Talks With You show, and even the writing of my dear friend Andy Squires all have in common? They are all reflections of a new cultural shift that is taking us beyond the era of postmodern deconstructive critique and into a new era of self-aware art that dances between irony and sincerity and embraces both genuine emotion and self-aware critique in response to the complexities of our rapidly changing world. This cultural and philosophical shift can be known as metamodernism. My name is Paul Anleitner, and you're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. And this is part one on metamodernism. Deep Talks is a listener-supported podcast. There are no advertisements anywhere in this podcast. If you'd like to see my work continue, if you think it's of any value, please consider supporting on Patreon today. You'll find a link in the description below. Maybe you've noticed it too, but there is a shift happening, a worldview shift, a philosophical shift, a cultural shift that's taking place here in the West. This is happening on multiple levels, multiple layers. Of course, I've been talking for some time now about the shift from the secular age into the post-secular age. And I think something that's running in parallel with that is the shift that's taking place in the way that we tell stories. We are shifting from a postmodern landscape into a metamodern landscape. And in this series, I'm going to be helping you understand some of the differences between modernism, postmodernism, and metamodernism so that you can properly identify what kind of art form you're engaging with and you can identify some of these features that are happening in this really, really fascinating, interesting shift. In this series, I'm going to try to help unravel some of the complexities, help you understand how metamodernism attempts to embrace contradictions, and how metamodernism attempts to do this oscillating dance between sincerity and irony that takes us to a new place, a new place beyond postmodern art and postmodern storytelling, which typically used since, uh, irony to critique sincerity. It used irony to deconstruct. It used irony as a tool of criticism and cynicism. But there's something different in metamodern storytelling, and I'm going to help you explore that and understand that better in this series. To understand metamodernism, we first need to take a step back and revisit the intellectual landscape from which it emerged. Modernism, with its embrace of innovation and progress, its critique of institutions, eventually gave way to the hyper-critique of postmodernism and postmodernism's skepticism of meta-narratives, its deconstruction of norms that went way beyond the modernist critique of antiquity and the modernist relocation of authority from hierarchical institutions to the individual. So postmodernism was a deeper layer of critique, obviously, a deeper layer of critique trying to maybe find some of the holes in modernism. The modernist shift, especially coming out of the Enlightenment, had relocated authority and value from groups and hierarchical institutions to attempting to locate that to individuals. Part of the we need to understand about the postmodern critique was the postmodern critique was seeing what was potential flaws or holes, gaps in coverage, if you will, 
to who the modernist story was benefiting. And so one of the primary features of postmodern thought was the critique of overarching stories. And so one of the ways that that manifested itself in postmodern storytelling was through subverting typical tropes, typical norms in modern storytelling or in storytelling from antiquity. One great example of this that's come up in in recent years has been the dialogue surrounding Star Wars, The Last Jedi. That would have been episode eight. Many people praised it for subverting expectations, subverting what people came to expect in a Star Wars story, which the Star Wars story was classically playing upon Joseph Campbell's hero myth, that, that hero's journey in which Joseph Campbell believed he had identified the monomyth, the monomyth that transcends time and culture. But of course, the postmodern critique of Campbell's monomyth is that who was telling those myths, or not even who was telling those myths, but who did those myths benefit to allow them to be disseminated throughout culture and time? And so one of the postmodern critiques has obviously been to find where there have been Um, neglected peoples, peoples that perhaps the modernist story and the story of antiquity didn't give proper attention to and dignity to. And that, that might be, again, the most sincere way of looking at the skepticism of postmodernism. So you take a story like The Last Jedi, and in The Last Jedi, you see the man who is completed the hero myth the, the 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 like ideal hero myth especially in the original in the original series in in Luke Skywalker the original trilogy I should say and now you find this man broken completely out of character he is in this state of skepticism and despair about the own jedi or his own jedi order that he participated in he's in a state of despair about his relationship to the world In many ways, people saw that as an effective postmodern critique of the hero myth. And of course, that in many ways alienated huge segments of the Star Wars fan base and audience who were quite attached to that hero's myth and attached to the character of Luke Skywalker that they saw go through this journey, this journey of developing virtuous character through going through something that was pretty like, I mean, to the T, of course, Lucas admits that he is specifically um, drawing upon Joseph's Camp- Joseph Campbell's work on the mon- monomyth. But again, that subversion of expectations, uh, the cynicism, the degree of irony, you know, you could take a character in that, that movie like Poe Dameron. Poe Dameron is very much playing the role of Han Solo from the original story, right? And we see in Han Solo and in Luke to some degree, but especially in the character of Han Solo, we see this, this, this celebration of what has typically been celebrated in modernity, in modern storytelling. This, this story of the individual who trusts his gut, trusts the instincts, his, trusts his internal compass to direct him towards the truth over and above institutional authority. So Poe Dameron is one of those characters. But of course, again, The Last Jedi subverts that story by saying, hang on, Poe is a, you know, he is a shoot first, ask questions later kind of hero. He's one that 
He is unaware of his own biases, right? So they make Poe into a character that needs to learn a lesson from the established authority. And in this particular case, the established authority is women, you know? So you bring in and incorporate some of the feminist critique that that took place during the postmodern period as well. And that's a great example of the tensions people experience between modern storytelling and what might have been more postmodern in its flavor. But here in the 21st century in particular, you are seeing an increase in storytelling among artists and thinkers who are oscillating between the two paradigms of modernism and postmodernism and are seeking a synthesis that acknowledges the merits of both while attempting to transcend their limitations. Modernism celebrated innovation, a break from tradition, and gave us iconic works that reshaped artistic expression and challenged societal norms at the time. Postmodernism reveled in self-aware irony in deconstructed established narratives, ushering an era of skepticism in storytelling and in the arts. A great example of this in my lifetime, one that became quite popular, was Fight Club. Fight Club is a great example of postmodern critique in popular culture. Why? Okay, you can see several different elements that make up the postmodern movement in Fight Club. First of all, you have the deconstruction of narratives. Fight Club deconstructs traditional narrative structures and blurs the line between reality and fantasy. Uh, You have an unreliable storyteller, the unreliable narrator of the story. The protagonist in the film is not even aware himself of the truth. So you have deconstruction of narratives. You also have critique of consumer culture. Fight Club satirizes consumerism and materialism. It is an ironic critique of it. It presents the character, the protagonist's disillusionment with modern society's emphasis on possessions and superficiality. You have intertextuality happening. The film references, it parodies various other cultural and media elements. So you have this like intertextual awareness of other important works of popular culture And so that gives it this sense of irony, this sense of self-awareness. You have metafictional elements. So the protagonist, for example, his disassociative identity disorder and the very concept of Fight Club itself involves layers of narrative and identity that reflect postmodern concerns about the constructed nature of reality. And finally, one of the most important elements, the most important ingredients of postmodern art and critique that you can see evident in Fight Club is how the irony, the deconstruction, isn't intending to lead viewers to a moment of sincere reflection for reconstructive purposes. There is no positive pathway to reconstruction in Fight Club. You have ambiguity. You have multiple interpretations. The ending of the film leaves room for different interpretations on what was true about the film all along. It leads the viewers to question the events and meanings presented. This is a common trait in postmodern storytelling, but it does not lead you to any positive pathway to reconstruct. It's just the sledgehammer doing the work of tearing down the walls of modernism. And so if you've been immersed in this kind of storytelling, an entire generation of people have been immersed in this kind of storytelling from their youth, 
I think inevitably one of the things that will emerge out of that is eventually you would and you should get to the point of going, great, now that I've knocked down, for example, this particular wall. So if you think about your philosophical framework, your religious framework, your theological framework, your your structure for meaning making as a house that you're living in, and you see postmodernism as the deconstructive act of going, this this house has some flaws to it. It needs improvement. I think that's what each successive philosophical movement was attempting to do. Modernism was looking at antiquity and looking at the, the location of authority, the location of epistemological authority being placed in the hands primarily of hierarchical institutions. And it relocated that from the collective to the individual through Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Not just Descartes. You see that movement in the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation can in many ways be considered a epistemological relocation. So where do we find truth? And the Protestant reformers were saying, we find truth in the scriptures. And we find truth in, in particular, this might have been an implication of it, maybe that maybe more so than a direct intentional effort. We are relocating truth from the institutional order of the Catholic Church to the individual's engagement with the scriptures, to the individual's participation in Christ, in faith. And so if you see that as a critique of the the philosophical, the religious, and the theological house that people are living in and going, okay, we need to remodel this kitchen. So we see some flaws here. If the Protestant Reformation was some, uh, you know, remodeling project that led into modernity, that led to the, the implications then further down the line, we can trace the Reformation and the radical Reformation to Descartes and Descartes going, okay, I think, therefore I am. That doesn't happen without the Protestant Reformation and the radical Reformation. We see that as part of this kind of home improvement project. Postmodernism then comes in as the sledgehammer. And in many ways, postmodernism functioned primarily as that sledgehammer to tear down those walls, to uh, destroy what many might have considered to be broken in this house. And what metamodernism is doing is looking at the rubble (laughs) and going, okay, now that we've torn this down, where are we going to live? How are we going to function? We have to have a house to live in. And so those that have grown up within the context of postmodern storytelling are now using some of the tools of postmodernism, but they're also maybe intrigued by the modern and pre-modern world. And what they're attempting to do is to go, is there a way that we can actually live within some sort of positive framework? Can we reconstruct the story? Is there room for things like sincerity and hope, or are all we left with is like the bleak cynicism of Fight Club? So this is a key feature that you need to understand about the, the metamodern movement. The metamodern movement is emerging as a bridge to allow for nuanced exploration of both sincerity and irony. Can we critique meta narratives 
while still being hopeful for the possibility that we might be able to live within a meta-narrative, recognizing the irony behind the postmodern critique that if all meta-narratives mask a play for power, that that in and of itself is a meta-narrative that might mask a play, not only might, but does mask a play for power in the hands of those telling the postmodern story. At the heart of metamodernism lies a duality that sets the stage for our journey in this series. The duality between sincerity and irony. Sincerity shouldn't be confused with naivety. It shouldn't be confused with mere earnestness in this context. Sincerity beckons us to engage with authenticity, while irony invites us to reflect, question, and deconstruct. The tension between these two fuels the meta-modernist spirit and it propels us into a realm where genuine emotions coexist with self-aware critique. The meta-modernist storyteller goes, we have to have the irony in order to get to authenticity, but the irony cannot lead us solely to cynicism. We have to have room for sincerity. Sincerity is also Part of authenticity. I think many people became aware that the, the, the increasing layers of irony in storytelling, in comedy, in art, and even music were creating barriers to authenticity, and a great emptiness emerged out of this meaning crisis, the meaning crisis that you know, we've been talking about on this podcast for five, six years now. A crisis of authenticity where no one feels like they can open themselves up to sincerity because sincerity invites hurt and sincerity invites weakness and weakness invites abuse and victimization. The metamodern artist is going, hang on, we have to have, if we're going to be authentic people, we have to have both sincerity and irony. A great example of this, and we'll talk about examples throughout this series, but one example instantly comes to mind of Wes Anderson movies. I've long been a fan of Wes Anderson movies, and Wes Anderson movies have always been popular for the incorporation of irony. They're highly ironic in the way, not just in the, you know, the narrative itself, but even in the aesthetic of Wes Anderson movies. There is an irony to its beauty. And that's one of the interesting features of Wes Anderson. And I think that would make Wes Anderson more of a meta-modern storyteller than a post-modern storyteller and filmmaker. Wes Anderson is intentionally using irony to lead people to a place of sincerity. You take The Royal Tenenbaums, for example. That's one of my favorite Wes Anderson movies. The Royal Tenenbaums, for example. And it is irony on top of irony on top of irony that eventually is leading you to a moment of sincerity with this family, a a hope for positive reconstruction for this dysfunctional family. The same could be true for his fantastic Mr. Fox. I love that movie too. (laughs) That's such a great movie. It was one unlike the Royal Tenenbaums where there is uh, some definitely some objectionable content It is uh, a movie you can watch with your kids. I love it. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox does the same thing. Layers of irony, but the irony is not like a fight club irony, which is leading you merely to critique and self-reflection in a way that deconstructs 
it is leading you to self-reflection that hopefully in the end brings you to a point of sincerity and authenticity. Now that you have a better understanding of the ideological movements of history that have brought us to metamodern thought and art, let's delve into the very essence of what metamodernism is all about and explore in more detail what makes it a unique and compelling cultural movement. Metamodernism can be thought of as a response to the polarities of modernism and postmodernism. It navigates the space between these two influential artistic and intellectual paradigms and tries to reconcile their divergent approaches. You can think of metamodernism like it's trying to recognize the merits of both, both modern, and I guess we could even lump in the pre-modern storytelling, but it's trying to reconcile the old way of telling stories with postmodern storytelling. It's trying to take the best from each approach while acknowledging the limitations of both to try to give a more nuanced perspective in a world that appears to be rapidly changing and wholly insufficient for postmodernism to properly address and postmodernism to properly re give a pathway to reconstruction for those desperately searching for meaning in a world that to many appears meaningless. Imagine a spectrum where on one end of the spectrum, modernist thought and modernist storytelling champions innovation and progress. It champions the individual, while postmodernism on the other end of the spectrum is championing irony. It's championing critique. It's championing those that feel like they have maybe been neglected from the modernist story. If you pictured those on two ends of the spectrum, metamodernism is attempting to position itself as a bridge between those two sides of the spectrum. It's merging innovation, merging progress with self-aware reflection. And this creates this interesting dynamic tension, a dance between earnestness and skepticism. That is the very essence of metamodernist sensibilities and storytelling. We can call this dance between earnestness and skepticism the oscillation principle. At the core of metamodernism lies the oscillation principle. It is a continuous back and forth movement between sincere engagement and ironic detachment. And metamodernist storytellers and artists see this as a better way of reflecting the complexity of our own experience in the contemporary culture we are now situated in, where we find ourselves earnestly attempting to engage with the world while remaining keenly aware of the layers of meaning and context that surround us. So in visual art, artists might use traditional techniques to convey modern themes or incorporate postmodern elements in a way that invites sincere reflection. The oscillation between these two modes allows for rich, multi-dimensional artistic expression that resonates with the complexity of our times. In literature, you might see authors blending traditional narrative structures with metafictional devices in a way that invites readers to explore both the story's world in so that it invites you to be in the story 
while also getting you to dance with a facet of stepping outside the story to reflect on the act of storytelling itself. And it's that duality, that dance, that creates a narrative tension, that oscillation between I'm in the story and self-aware stepping out of the story in a search for meaning, that's at the heart of metamodernist storytelling. Postmodernism critiqued and deconstructed established norms, but it also created a yearning for authenticity and connection. So those of us that got to the end of Fight Club and we went, great, now what? We found ourselves yearning for some positive pathway to reconstruction, a positive pathway to re-enchantment. To frame this in the most charitable light I can, because I know postmodernism is a is a buzzword that incites many, many different responses, especially among those who are found themselves empty at the end of a postmodern deconstructive journey. I know that it elicits lots of different feelings. There are some that think it hasn't done enough deconstructive work to tear down the falsehoods of modernity. In the most sincere and the most, how should I put this, the most charitable approach that I can give to postmodernism and the strengths of it that I think metamodernism is still trying to hold on to is to say that you could consider in its best light that there is room in postmodernism to see it as the prophetic critique of idols, right? And I, th- I think there's a lot of unhealthy facets of postmodernism, right? When postmodernism leads you to a point of deconstructing all, all meta-narratives in a way that leaves you void of truth, meaning leaves you in despair, leaves you in nihilistic apathy. Obviously, that is not good. But there have been postmodern thinkers, there have been postmodern artists that have done good work in challenging idols, idols that have falsely claimed to give us a sense of life and vitality through our trust in them that actually do not lead to life, to flourishing, but instead lead to despair. They lead to oppression. So there have been valid insights and critiques that have come from postmodern thought and postmodern art. But at the end of it, many of us who have been immersed in postmodern thought and art have found ourselves yearning for authenticity and connection. We can't merely deconstruct the established norms without giving us a place to find new, authentic connection. We can't merely critique the truth. We must locate the truth. And metamodernism is attempting to respond to this by giving people the permission through the art for sincerity, for genuine engagement, for genuine engagement while acknowledging the complexities, the fragmented nature of the world that we live in. As we talk about metamodernism in the series, I, I want to be clear that similar to postmodernism, it's difficult. You can't put like, you can't give it a creedal statement, right? You can't say, you know, uh, this is the this is the metamodern creed. There are some flavors and ingredients to it that I think are indicative of the same way we might talk about postmodernism. There was never a postmodern church that'd be impossible because postmodernism as a flavor was primarily a flavor of critique, not of creating. 
Metamodernism is a dynamic and evolving mindset. And so you can read three or four different books on metamodernism, and you might find that each of those philosophers and authors might have different ways of describing metamodernism. So some of these books, and I apologies, I'm going to butcher some of these authors' names because they are primarily um, not found in American context. They are foreign authors. Metamodernism, Historicity, Effect, and Depth After Postmodernism. Uh, the, the editors of that book include Robin Van Den Acker, Allison Gibbons, Timotheus Vermeulen. There is The Listening Society by Hansi Freinecht, uh, A Metamodern Guide to Politics, book one. There's Metamodernity by Lene Rachel Anderson. Um, the, the complete title of her book is Metamoder- Metamodernity, Meaning and Hope in a Complex World. And Metamodernism, The Future of Theory by Jason Ananda Josephin Storm. There's a great YouTuber out there um, who's a writer as well, um, Brendan Graham Dempsey, who's done great work on metamodernism, excellent work. Um, and as he highlights in his series after po- postmodernism, coming up with a metamodern synthesis is doable, but we do need to acknowledge that you can get authors. You can get philosophers together right now in a room and say, what is metamodernism? And they're going to have some divergent opinions. But as Brendan Graham Dempsey highlights, I'm in full agreement with him. Just as you could see in postmodern philosophy and postmodern thought, you could see divergence of opinion on what postmodernism actually is. You can still find overlapping commonalities and agreements that will allow you to come up with some sort of synthesis. And that's what I'm attempting to do in this series, to provide a, a synthesis approach to give you, I think, what might best describe po- metamodernism in a way that is similar to, if I were to say, this is what postmodernism is. So I want to acknowledge that even from the outset as we go through the rest of this series. But acknowledging all that, I want to offer you now what I see as the core characteristics of metamodernism. Or what we might say are the essential flavors of metamodernism. The first and I think most significant flavor of metamodernism, the first core ingredient that should stand out to you as this is an example of metamodern storytelling or art, is when you notice the dance between sincerity and irony. At the heart of metamodernism is this delicate dance between sincerity and irony. These seemingly contradictory elements coexist in metamodern storytelling and art, creating a multidimensional and thought-provoking experience for both the creators of the content and those that are consuming the content, the art, the story. How does metamodern storytelling and art deal with this delicate dance between sincerity and irony, which seem to oppose each other? Well, they have to hold on to these two poles in tension together. You have to have authentic engagement in your storytelling and art. So the sincerity that we see in metamodernism shouldn't be confused with just earnestness. It's not like, um, you know, it's it's not like you go back and it's interesting. I sometimes talk about music with my um, my teenage son, who comes obviously from a very different generation, and he finds it interesting when we listen to you know bands like Pearl Jam or other things from the 90s that seem to have this like pure earnestness to them. 
it's kind of disarming to him. You know, they many might see something like that as cringe, right? Pure earnestness might be cringe. Authentic engagement would be engaging with authenticity, which means embracing genuine emotions, connecting with the world on a personal level, but it still requires you to hold on to the other pole of having some sort of, dare I say, protective layer of irony so that it is not purely earnest and naive. So these kinds of artists and storytellers that are incorporating meta-modern, the meta-modern ethos into their art, they are trying to transcend the detached irony of postmodernism, connecting it to sincerity without having this, again, a naive vulnerability. In music, that might look like an artist who puts genre-bending innovation into their music. It blurs boundaries. It shows that they are self-aware in their musical creation while allowing for there to be honest communication packaged within potentially layers of ironic communication. In film and movies and television, there might be moments that evoke a genuine sense of empathy among the audience for a character or show character growth, even though it's situated within that one foot in the story, one foot outside of the story, self-awareness, that genre-savvy sense that you know we are self-aware, um, we are not, we're not naive in our storytelling about our place in our own stories. This is all held in tension with that other pole of irony, but in metamodern storytelling, the irony is employed more so in service of self-reflective irony. So irony in metamodernism is primarily a self-reflective tool as opposed to more of this, you know, the kind of the postmodern use of irony, which was to use it as a tool of critiquing uh, institutions of critiquing grand narratives of of doing layers of critique on uh, what is above you. Metamodern storytelling uses irony as a tool of self-reflective critique. It invites you to question, to deconstruct, to critically engage with cultural norms, narratives, and conventions. It acknowledges that there's layers of meaning and context that we are in a story, but that there are stories potentially beyond us. And yet, it might primarily be focused not on critiquing the system, but on helping you critique yourself. Think of everything, everywhere, always at once. One like every single Oscar at the last Oscars. Uh, that's a great example of it. That the layers of irony, yes, I'm sure I know there were critiques of systemic things in that movie, but it was primarily a tool that invites the audience into self-reflective, ironic critique of themselves by going through the eyes of the protagonists and her family members in that story and going, where are their flaws in their family systems and structures? Where's her flaws as a mother, as a wife? So it uses the irony for self-reflective critique and deconstruction more so than systemic institutional de- deconstruction, though that is also apparent. It is not employed in the same level as postmodern art. 
that irony might look like a character in a film or a movie breaking the fourth wall, like they're actually addressing the audience. Some great examples of this, obviously, are the, the Deadpool character who's been doing that in the comics long before there were Deadpool movies. Another great example of that might be the um, lesser known, but I think it was still critically acclaimed series, Mr. Robot, uh, where the protagonist in that story has a lot of these sort of fight club elements to it where there is questions about whether or not this is a trustworthy narrator of the story and the protagonist specifically speaks to the audience through the medium of the screen acknowledging the audience's existence in his own story it's very very fascinating but i would say that's another feature of meta modern um irony in action uh artists who uh, are intentionally juxtaposing high and low culture tra tra that challenge, you know, traditional notions of artistic value where they're saying we're not just part of high culture art. We are incorporating high culture art and low culture art together in a way that um, shows that we are critically self-aware of our place in the story and potentially of our own blind spots and weaknesses. Uh, you can see in stories, again, like narratives that play with genre expectation. They employ irony to subvert the familiar story arc and encourage the reader to think critically about those stories where they have seen them elsewhere. So it invites the reader into critical self-reflection. So the, the oscillation between these two tensions are important to clearly distinguish something between between potentially just a, a work of modern art storytelling or a work of postmodern art st storytelling or a work of metamodern art. The key for metamodernism is the oscillation between the sincerity and the irony, the dynamic interplay between using irony into sincerity to use sincerity in a way that um, that, that that allows authenticity but employs it in parallel with irony so that we are not naively vulnerable to potential deception or what you know a storyteller might see us as see as being a potential deception a potential deception about a, a perhaps like a, a meta narrative that might be a meta narrative that oppresses for example and the oscillation is continual it's not a static there's not like a Oh, now we're in a moment of sincerity. Now we're in a moment of irony. There's a dynamic interplay that's going on back and forth, back and forth, creating this ever-evolving experience. And it keeps the listener, the viewer, the reader on their toes, keeps you constantly questioning, constantly reflecting, and constantly engaging with culture in this profound and multifaceted manner. And the goal is to not prioritize one over the other, to say we are doing sincerity only, or we're saying sincerity is more important than ironic critique. The goal of metamodern art and storytelling is to have the harmonious balance in the interplay, and that the existence of both is necessary. It's a yin and a yang concept here. It's it's like a, you know a form of you know, storytelling Taoism here, that you need to have both. You must have sincerity and irony. You must have this ability to critique in order to get to authenticity, but the, you can't have authenticity without critique, without self-reflection. And so this is one of the core facets of this fascinating, and I think 
you're seeing how much these sorts of stories are resonating with people. Obviously, everything, everywhere, always at once. Golly, I, I still don't know if I'm saying those words in the right order. Won a ton of Oscars, critically acclaimed. Barbie will likely win a ton of Oscars too as well. It's doing many of these same things. Uh, you see television shows that become critically acclaimed that are doing similar things, sincerity and irony together. And the reason why they're resonating with people is because they are using the tools of postmodernism, but they're not leaving people with that empty sense, that, that vacuum of story, the vacuum of meaning, the, va the vacuum of, of a positive pathway towards reconstruction. Instead, they're attempting to offer people that, a moment of authentic connection to encourage them, for example, in like everything, everywhere, always at once, to encourage them to take seriously the relationships with their families, to work on their family health. But they do that in a way that they're attempting, at least, to not be like preachy about it or not to have it feel like an 80s sitcom, like, you know, Family Matters or, or Full House. It is in some ways like art that is aware of those <laughs> and, and plays on those kinds of tropes from like a full house or a family member, family matters or a step-by-step, -step, you know, the TGIF shows. And it plays on those in a way, uh, ironically, to hopefully subvert expectations and to lead people on a positive, at least in the creator, the content creator's mind, the artist's mind, a positive path to reconstruct. In that way, that is the dance too between modernism and postmodernism. It's taking the postmodern irony and it is attempting to apply it to the notions of modernity and modernity's notions of progress, I should say, that history is headed towards somewhere. And in many metamodern stories, the goal may not necessarily as overarching as changing the tides of history but are more so focused on the individual, the individual change. It's therapeutic in some sense. It is causing you to reflect on your place in your story in a way that at least the artist sees as positive. And of course, there can be debate on whether or not the, the, the direction the storyteller is leading us in is in effect a positive direction. But we have to acknowledge they're trying to do something different. There's a clear difference at the end of everything everywhere, always at once. The position you were left in as the viewer of that versus the position you were left in as the viewer of Fight Club. Now, some might argue in the end, it still feels like they haven't built a convincing case for overcoming nihilism. And I might actually agree with you on that. I think we need something more than what everything, everywhere, always at once attempted to offer in that story. But I'm still acknowledging the storytellers are trying to do something there that's very different than Fight Club. In the next part of this series, we're going to go deeper into understanding the core characteristics of metamodernism and explaining how sincerity and irony shape our perception of culture, art, and society. So I hope you'll come back for part two of this. But I want to conclude today with a case study, a case study in how the movie Shrek is a great example of metamodern storytelling. I've always felt, well not always felt, because these always haven't been around, but I have felt in recent times that if you really want to gauge the cultural impact of a work of art, you measure it by the memes. 
And if you were going to gauge the impact of a movie on Gen Z, for example, uh, by the measure of the memes, then by all accounts, Shrek should be considered a very influential work of art <laughs> for this current generation. And I've always found this fascinating. You know, obviously, <laughs> there are layers of, of reasons, uh, complex reasons for why a movie like that would strike a chord with younger generations. You could just point to simplistic answers like the, you know, the, you know, kind of the, 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 the elementary school comedy about fart jokes and things like that. Yes. But you can find that in a lot of different places. What makes this something that is so memed and so disseminated through culture? I actually think it's more than just like it has this this layer of comedy to it that's appealing to Gen Z. And in an ironic way, Shrek has become, there's even Shrek, my kids recently went to go see, uh, they saw a, there are musicals, there are like, there are performances of Shrek, like on like theater performances of Shrek. They went to a, a local high school to see a, a performance of Shrek, Shrek the musical happening. And I think this is a great example of how in culture, the irony of Shrek has become a tool for meta-modern storytelling. And in fact, the very Shrek movies are meta-modernist in their proclivities. And let me explain why. Number one, Shrek is a meta-modernist story because of the way that it subverts traditional fairy tale tropes. Shrek takes traditional fairy tale elements and turns them on their head in a way that plays with those postmodern methods of communication for deconstructing established norms. You're taking these traditional fairy tales and you're using them in a way that isn't merely for comedy. There are layers of self-aware irony in, in Shrek that are, are using these stories to subvert your expectations about what these stories are actually about. They are critiquing them in ways that are subtle and some might consider childish, but I, I think there's a degree of intelligibility that's happening there in Shrek. In fact, it was funny. I was listening recently. Uh, I saw uh, a video showed up on my algorithm that um, was about uh, Jonathan Pajot, the uh, icon carver. Um, I, he's very popular in uh, like Jordan Peterson circles and is a friend of Jordan Peterson. And he's very much into telling, uh, talking about symbolism. Um, there are many of you that have been telling me you need to be listening to him for years. I, I've done some engagement with his work. I have I'm, I've not watched or listened to as much from him as I know many of you have, but I found this video that I was watching from him interesting. Evidently, he's working on a project of, of retelling classic stories like uh, Snow White, for example. And he brought up uh, Shrek as an example of the inversion of fairy tale stories. And he brought up how Shrek inverts these stories in a way that he thinks is um, counterproductive to telling these stories in a way that that leads to reconstruction and reenchantment. And I thought it was an interesting observation. I thought it was interesting that he brought <laughs> he brought up Shrek of all stories. I I don't know if I fully agree or disagree because I think there are elements of Shrek that um and I'm not saying Peugeot is suggesting that this that Shrek is a postmodern story, but I could see someone looking at Shrek and going, "Yes, this is a postmodern comedy because they see the irony, because they see the subversion." of the fairy tale 
in the story. And I actually think it's not that. And I actually think it exhibits more characteristics of metamodernist storytelling because, and this is the second reason why I think this fits. Um, first, the first one, of course, was subversion of fairy tale tropes. The second reason why I think Shrek exhibits modern, metamodernist storytelling is because those subversions are intended to lead to sincere emotional moments. Obviously, it's a parody. There have long been parodies. You've got all the Mel Brooks movies, which are parodies. And of course, there's questions on are parodies ironic subversions, postmodern subversions? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I don't have the capacity right now to think about whether or not Mel Brooks movies are uh, postmodern subversions of story, whether they're just uh, merely comedic parodies. But uh, obviously Shrek is doing that comedic parody stuff. But it's incorporating the ironic elements to deliver an attempt, at least, at sincere emotional moments that are intended to resonate with the audience on a deeper level. These characters go and, and demonstrate I, genuine feelings. You can see throughout the movies, you see what is attempted to be communicated as genuine character development and growth. That is not what Fight Club does. I, I refer to Fight Club as our case study for postmodern storytelling. Fight Club uses the irony merely to deconstruct and not to show positive character growth. There is no positive character growth really for you could make the case that maybe um, the protagonist in Fight Club demonstrates positive character growth and not being detached, uh, attached to his consumerism anymore. But whether or not that leads him to a better place is certainly up for debate, if not wholeheartedly impossible to derive from that story. Whereas what you see in Shrek is these characters are actually going on uh, journeys of character growth. And the way that that happens is in the oscillation between sincerity and irony. Shrek is also metamodern in that it's self-aware of its place in culture. It's filled with pop culture references, obviously the familiar fairy tale characters. They, those characters, though, are not just aware that they are characters in a story. Shrek is aware that they are characters in a story. But they're also aware of an existence of popular culture outside of the story. That's where it gets meta. There are nods that are uh, intended to get the viewer aware that these characters somehow have an awareness of contemporary, contemporary celebrity culture outside of their own world. This self-awareness is a great example of metamodern storytelling where you are existing within the story in a way that is searching within that story for meaning, for sincerity, for authenticity. And yet you also have one foot outside the story, breaking the fourth wall to demonstrate like I have this awareness of the world outside of the story that I'm in. And I think in many ways that is one of the things that you can derive from the postmodern critique is in the postmodern critique, you have to be aware, right? The postmodern critique is that aren't you aware that you are living in a story that could be a mask for play, for power? But the metamodern approach takes that and goes, okay, that doesn't mean that I can't live within this story. I should just have an awareness of the ways in which there are other stories out there. And so cult Shrek's you know, cultural references demonstrate an awareness 
that these characters are in a story and yet that there are stories outside of their own. It's really, really fascinating. One of the key elements that you see in metamodern is storytelling that would connect Shrek with even a movie that when I felt like every single Oscar, everything, every, everything, everywhere, always at once, everywhere, everything, always at once, I get the order messed up all the time. And I think that's okay. I think that would probably even fit within the playful irony of that film. And that that's the next feature of Shrek that I want to highlight. The playful irony and humor. This is one of the features of metamodern storytelling is it still employs irony and humor over and over again. Um, that's what connects Shrek to something like everything, everywhere, always at once to Barbie, right? Barbie does the, the Barbie film does the same thing. It's still on my uh, list of, of movies to see. I haven't seen it yet, but from everything I've read and reviewed so far, it is very self-aware, very ironic. Regularly, I mean, you can pick this up from the trailer already, that it is using its self-awareness, it's using its irony in a playful manner to create instances of humor that are hopefully, as many people have suggested, are, are trying to lead to authentic connection with the viewer and to, the, to encouraging the viewer to give authentic reflection on their own life and society, not merely to deconstruct it, but to offer them a pathway to potential reconstruction. And finally, I'd say with Shrek, you can see this delicate balancing act that I think meta-modernist art and storytelling feels like it still has to do. This balance between entertainment, between irony and authenticity. And you can see in Shrek this balancing act of ironic, self-aware elements with moments of intended, at least, whether you experience it or not is up to you, but intended moments of sincerity, of character development. Everything Everywhere does the same thing. You are situated in a film that's nothing but layers of irony, 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 and it is trying, though, in that irony, to do this balancing act. We have irony, but we juxtapose this irony with punctuated moments of sincerity. And that's the thing that makes it different from Fight Club. So now that you've got a basic understanding of what metamodernism is all about, reach out to me and tell me what works of film and television or literature, other forms of storytelling, maybe they're comic books or graphic novels. Maybe you see them as being metamodern works of art too. I'd love to hear your suggestions. You can reach out to me on Patreon in the discussion forum for this episode, or you can connect with me on Twitter at Paul Amleitner. I guess it's X now, whatever it is. You can reach out to me there. Speaking of Patreon, again, this podcast can only work because people think it's worth supporting. Currently, we have 91 patrons supporting this podcast. I have a goal to reach 200 to keep my work going, not just to keep it going, but to continue to do series like this and other plans I have for the future. So if you're finding this work valuable, if you think it's in the top five or top 10 things you most listen to regularly on your commutes or going to the gym or washing dishes or mowing your lawn, please consider supporting. I have a link in the description below and there's a bunch of perks and benefits for those who support. Bonus episodes, Q&A episodes, opportunities for Zoom calls with myself and other listeners and other patron supporters in our community from all over. 
So again, check the link in the description below to support this podcast. And as always, there's a very special list of supporters who have been giving at the Theology 201 level or higher that I want to recognize. It's people like Clint, Jesse, Dave, Tim, Alex, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Garth, John Mark, Jesse, John Mark, J. Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P., Stephen Harper, and Josie. Thank you all. You, I just can't do this without you. Um, obviously, anything helps. The two buck a month stuff is great and helps as well. But without your generous support, uh, I just can't uh, invest the time into this this podcast and project that I'm able to now. And of course, as I've been talking about for years, I would like to give more attention and energy to. So if you feel like that's worthwhile and worthwhile investment, will you consider supporting? Thank you all again. I hope to hear from you, your thoughts, your opinions, and perspectives. Reach out to me, keep the conversation going, and until next time, we'll talk again soon.